all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Well, hello, and welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is Donna Ingram. I have almost 30 years in in experience in fire and fraud and as a past director of the International Association of Arson Investigators. Yes, and this is Mike Slatman calling from the beautiful federal courthouse in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, We're teaching an expert witness course, and I'm a past president. I am a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators, and honored to be that. And I am the president of Fire Consulting International and and, uh, manager of CFIS, um, and that is the Consolidated Fire Investigation Services. And we have a wonderful guest today, and Donna's going to talk to you about them. Yeah, and if you hear a little bit of a delay, Mike and I aren't in the same place where we usually cue each other, so <laughs> we're going to go by a little hesitation. We are privileged today to have very uh, special guests. Our first guest is Chief Judge C. Philip Nichols, Jr., recently retired after 25 years, very recent, I understand. He was appointed a judge of the circuit court in '92 elected to a 15-year term in November 94 and again in 2002. He's presided over 650 civil and criminal jury trials, trials over 25 of which were first-degree murder trials and two capital murder cases. He served until June 2017 as the 19th Chief Judge of the Maryland 7th Judicial, Judicial Court. In 2016, he received the 19th Annual Sodaro Award for Good Judicial Temperament, Civility, and Courtesy from the Maryland State Bar Association, as well as the Award for Legal Excellence and Public Service Responsibility in 2010. He was a Navy captain uh, in the U.S. Naval Reserve and served 37 years of military service. He was also the first reservist in the nation to be ordered to the court twice for duty as an appellate military judge. He's performed duties at the U.S. Embassy in Rome, Honduras, Pearl Harbor, and aboard the USS Kidd, and most recently in Guantanamo Bay. Your Honor, welcome to Speaking of Fire. (laughs) I'm glad to be here. Thank you. And our second guest is Attorney Thomas May. He has extensive experience in all facets of the fire service industry with over 29 years of involvement in fire investigation-related fields. He's a licensed attorney. He specializes in cold case forensic fire explosion investigations, litigation, and representation of expert witness facing Daubert or similar challenges. He also provides expert witness testimony and performs NFPA 921 and NFPA 1033-based peer and file reviews for insurance companies and attorneys. He's a lecturer, author in the area of forensic fire science and law. He's an adjunct professor at Eastern Kentucky University, and Mr. May also served in Iraq as a forensic fire investigator for the U.S. Army. And welcome to Speaking of Fire, Mr. May. Thanks for having me. Well, well you know, I, I just, I, we're, I'm always surprised that we have such wonderful uh, guests because I don't know why they would be uh, uh, on our show. But thank you for being here, Your Honor, and, and particularly Tom. Um, Your Honor, I, I want to say to you that I, I really appreciate you. I, I met you in Maryland when we were doing an expert witness course, and, and Tom May was there. He was one of the uh, the attorneys. And... Um, I was I was so happy to hear about the good judicial temperament and civil and and courtesy award that you got, Your Honor, because I don't think I'm ever going to get that. So tell me how 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 did you do that, Your Honor? How did you do? That? Uh, well, it's it's done once a year. It's kind of a funny story. It's like a humility award for fighter pilots. The um, 
Anselm Sidero was a friend of the judge that I clerked for, uh, Judge Ernest Loveless, and um, he was the last state's attorney in Maryland to actually hang somebody. So name and a civility and judicial temperament award for the guy who hung the last guy in Maryland was uh, something else. But he just had a great, he was a first-generation Italian uh, or American citizen. His folks got to see him live the American dream. He um, was elected state's attorney in Baltimore City, their chief prosecutor, and later became chief judge of their circuit court. But generally nice person who rarely lost his temper, if ever, that I'm aware of. Um, and that, that has a lot to do. I mean, there's a lot you can lose your temper with around here, and I suspect in any courthouse. And um, it's it's a reflection of the adversary system. And um, But today I'm doing a civil uh, automobile accident case where the uh, brother was the the uh, passenger in the car, and he had to sue his sister and the other person in the accident. So probably their Thanksgiving is not going to be anything like it was this time last year. So uh, in any event, I mean, I just get an hour off from the trial to come talk to you, and I'm glad that I did. Well, I appreciate you, Your Honor, because uh, we're going to talk to you for a minute about a, a fire case, but I wanted to also welcome Tom May, who, who I've gotten to know and and see, Tom uh, is also an IAAI, an International Association of Arson Investigators, uh, CFI, or Certified Fire Investigator. Right. And and so he went into the he went into, he went he became a fire investigator, and then he went into the law. And we're not we're trying to figure out which one is better. Which one is it, Tom? What's oh God, tough question. I can read. we had the big courthouse fire here, maybe a decade ago. Or, or we we have a historic part of the complex that's been here since the 1720s almost. The, the courthouse, our courthouse was the uh, family farm for John Carroll, who was the first Archbishop of Maryland, actually Baltimore, and probably the whole country, mm-hmm. um, founded Georgetown University where I went. But in any event, we bought the family farm, put a courthouse here, and it's been here ever since. The historic part of the complex <laughs> went up in smoke one day, and it was just truly remarkable that fire could do that much damage as quickly as it did. And it was um, the worst case, you know, the, the um, worst case scenario, um, you know, the the ultimate bad storm. The wind was blowing at 30 miles an hour. The mm-hmm. um, first due fire company was on a call someplace else. The wind was blowing at 30 miles an hour. The fire got a 20-minute head start. And before it's all over, it did about $28 million worth of damage here. It was a huge fire. And it was the first week, I think it was the I'm trying to remember. I think we do four alarms, maybe five. And um, it is the first one we had in a long time. Um, We recently had another fire. um, I think it was five alarms. I'll have to check. Um, But they, um, at the University of Maryland, they actually shut down the university um, to... um, um, because the smoke was so bad in College Park. But anyway, we had a big fire here. a while ago, and that sort of separated everybody. Uh, what was the question again? Now I've already forgotten. <laughs> better to be an attorney or, or a fire investigator. Oh, yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. <laughs> Wait a minute. After the fire, there's a crane company in Beltsville, Maryland called Johnson Crane. And um, make a long story short, they put two big cranes in this big smoking hole in the ground. And the... Um, um, Fire investigators took turns going down in the fire. It was a four-alarm fire. It was on uh, November 3rd of 2004, so it's been a little longer than that. And it was the first four-alarm fire in 12 years here. So they put one crane on one side, and they put the fire investigator in the bucket on the other. So your job was sort of go in this deep smoking hole in the ground where we'd burn the courthouse right to the, right to the bottom of it pick up anything you could, throw it in the other bucket. Once you got the bucket filled, they pull they pull you up in the other bucket and lay the stuff out in the parking lot to see if somebody to see if it was arson or not cuz any fire that huge, everybody and their brother was here to give you an opinion on what happened. So uh it's Did they find out, out the Mrs- what happened? Yes. The Mrs. O'Leary's cow, if you will, was a construction lamp that the back had bro- broken off of, the cover had broken off of, and had fallen over into some construction debris. And that's what caused our, our courthouse fire. Yeah. We well, didn't lose anything common. other than the real estate. We didn't lose any dead judge pictures. We didn't lose any files. 
building, <laughs> the historic complex was pretty much wrecked and had to be rebuilt. Fire was so intense, we weren't sure that we could rebuild it the way it was. Uh, because of the mortar having moisture in it, we thought the fire would take enough of the moisture out where it wouldn't, wouldn't hold the bricks together. But after a while, we were able to determine that the bricks could stand, the outer structure could stand, and then we redesigned the interior of it. It was building a ship in a bottle at that point. Well, it's a beautiful courthouse uh, that you're in, and you're re- you were chief judge, and you just retired as chief judge. And um, and Tom uh, Tom uh, May, you um, you were there in the courthouse, and uh, and uh, and also helping us with that expert witness thing. Um, what do you think is is better? You, you like being a fire investigator, or you want to you want to hang around really nice places? Well. I've enjoyed dabbling in both uh, litigation as well as boots-on-the-ground fire investigations. Uh, both have unique challenges, and uh, both are uh, very uh, interesting and full of perils and pitfalls. Uh, I can't say with certainty uh, which one I prefer, and that's why I uh, keep my uh, fingers in both at this point. <laughs> Well, good. You're still working as a fire investigator, too, aren't you? Yes, uh, I work for a forensic engineering firm as a fire investigator, and as a matter of fact, I had quite a busy week last week, an explosion in Detroit where the uh, home uh, uh, was uh, non-existent, uh, nothing but a basement, uh, uh, an egg fire, an egg farm fire in Utah, a week or so ago, and some of your more routine-type investigations like meat on the stove and stuff like that. You never know what you're going to uh, run across in fire investigations, and that keeps it interesting. Right. Um, and, Your Honor, how did you get an interest in fire, uh, in fire-related law? Um, because that's not something a lot of the judges... <laughs> not, not everybody yeah. has an interest in it. That is true. I grew up a block away from the firehouse in Laurel, in, in my hometown of Maryland, where my family's been for generations. And my great-great-grandfather was the seventh chief of the, of the fire department. And um, it, it turned into my daycare center before it was over with. And a lot of my close friends <laughs> are, are firefighters, and, and it's been that way. Uh, I got to be there. I got to be the third lawyer in the history of the Laurel Volunteer Fire Department, so that was kind of neat. And I, I was until I got appointed to the bench, so that was good for me. And generally, good people who try very, very hard to do the right thing at all the right times, and I give them a lot of credit because sometimes it's dangerous. We we actually had an incident where someone almost got killed at, at years ago. That was just sad. You, you, you don't. It's in the back of your mind, but you never really think it's going to be you. And we had uh, three firefighters get seriously injured taking a ladder down when it hit a high-tension wire. Um, just tragic beyond belief. And, uh, you know, they, they, they carry the injuries today. I wanted to ask you, what kind of cases do you do and, and how many deal with fire-related law issues? Uh, I can tell you that 80% of what a judge does in Maryland in criminal court is drug or alcohol related. Um, the number of arson cases are relatively small uh, compared to that. Um, I mean, we're a 900,000 population jurisdiction. Uh, we have major, major drug issues with OxyContin and, and opioid addiction. In fact, we in Maryland, as I understand the statistics, we have more um, overdose deaths than we, than we do traffic deaths, which is just unbelievable to me, just shocking. Um, I also saw, uh, and I'd recommend everybody see it that hasn't, there was a Netflix series about Huntington, West Virginia. Um, I'm close to the Palatine Nuns because they have a convent in Laurel. It's a block away from my house, so I grew up around the nuns. In Huntington, West Virginia, they have 10 times the national average when adjusted for population uh, overdose deaths. It is just remarkable. They followed the first female fire chief in West Virginia on her rounds uh, and featured her in this story. It is just, it's, it's an 80,000 population, which is, you know, taxing every government resource mm-hmm. um, with, with opioid addiction. We, well, there's this part of the Seventh Circuit is uh, Calvary County, and one of our courthouse employees lost her daughter to, as I understand it, just recently. Uh, just sad, sad beyond sad. Um, 
there was another young man who was a his his dad was a senior police officer here. All his son ever wanted to be was a police officer. Wound up an FBI agent, and of course, got her on the job. Prescribed painkillers, painkillers taken away. He winds up going into the evidence and you know taking taking liberties that he shouldn't. And uh, they find him in an FBI car, not far from the Navy Yard, and overdosed and unconscious and just mm. sad and winds up in prison before it's all over. There's a genuinely good person who tried very hard who got addicted to something um, and tragically yeah. kind of lost it all. Yeah, it's really true. And and what happens is that uh, we end up having uh, either firefighters, police, uh, uh, well, it's in, in every profession. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, priests and nuns can, uh, can even get... Uh, accidentally hooked on, on oh, uh, opioids. Yeah, it's a well, horrible, it's a horrible. Yeah. Well, in Huntington, um, they're basically a blue-collar community, coal mining, heavy work, and a lot of injuries as a result, and a lot of medical treatment. Uh, and that was one of the theories. What was interesting, they interviewed a firefighter, and we were talking about the damage that occurs to professionals in the business. Um, mm-hmm. And they said, you know, the police department's kind of used to all this because it's you know, usually bad news when you call the police department. Because with the fire department, I'm there to fix problems. Because we're not coming close to fixing problems. And it's, you know, we have 10 times the, ne- you know, would be the national average of, you know, overdose deaths around here. Wow. That kind of- <laughs> go, ahead. go ahead, Donna. That, well, I was going to say that ties into... Uh, I wanted to, uh, when it comes to qualifications and so forth, Tom, I know that you're out there uh, talking about Daubert, and qualifications of fire experts differ extensively, and the courts are beginning to differentiate among the diversity of experts. That's true, um, but uh, with the advent of uh, National Fire Protection Association uh, 1033, uh, standard uh, for fire investigator qualifications. Uh, the uh, landscape is changing. Uh, the uh, rule that's in play, uh, the rule of evidence 702, uh, focuses on an expert's skill, knowledge, education, experience, and training, and uh, that varies widely uh, among fire investigators. Uh, in the past, uh, fire investigation was viewed as a trade and uh, expertise was gained uh, through rule of thumb and on-the-job training, but now the field has morphed into a more scientific endeavor. And I really like to hear from both of you uh, throughout this show to share a lot of our listeners are fire service and a lot of them are, you know, whether they're beginning their career or they're about to retire and say come out of public service into private uh, for them to understand because I know when when this first occurred Daubert you know which is didn't even result from fire it was scary and a lot of people are scared of this and so yes. the the rule 702 um, should judges utilize that to appoint well, an let expert? Me, let, me, let me talking about expert witnesses is is important. And I used to teach the, the part of the arson class at the, the National Fire Academy in Emmitsburg. And while I was there, we decided we needed a that they needed a follow-on course um, on ex, being an expert witness and testifying in court and how that worked because it's different. And you can be a fact mm-hmm. witness. Anybody can be a fact witness. But you gotta you gotta have some degree of skill and expertise that's of value to the fact finder as an expert witness. And they created a two-week course uh, to do that at the National Fire Academy, um, which is a good thing. Uh, I think that. Um, we challenge things more. Uh, part of the problem with forensic science, it's not just fire science, it's, forens- it's a lot of forensic science. It's in the news a lot. There was an article in the paper yesterday where, where two, um, it was in Massachusetts, two drug um, lab technicians just went to, or getting, one went, I think the other's charged with basically falsifying the evidence. Uh, the issue had always been that the, the crime lab had always been part of the police department, and there's a move in America to move it away from the police department and make it somewhat independent. Um, 
it, it, it's not the normal kind of science where if you, inv- you invent a cold medication and it works, people will buy it. There's a limited audience with forensic science, and it's the use and me's of the world, the juries and the judges and the lawyers of the world who depend on it. And our forensic science just, you know, um, it, it, it didn't reach the level that the rest of science did, and I think everybody knew it. Um, we sort of passed it on from person to person, uh, and, and you just can't. And, and some things that we, you know, consider, you know, the holy grail of fire science really weren't one day. And uh, it, it needed to be more scientific. Uh, it needed a greater de- degree of skill and expertise as to what happened and why. Uh, the Brittingham case. It's Brittingham, right? The one in Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they called oh, it. There's an, yeah, yeah, well, there was a, yeah. if you haven't read the New Yorker article, it's a couple of years old about the Brittingham case, you should, because it called into question a lot of, you know, what we, we perceived as givens in, in mm-hmm. arson investigation is just not being the case. Um, and I, I think it's, it, you need, if you're going to put it, it, it joy, uh, jurors, judges, you like to hear scientific tests. And for example, in your, in your, Garden variety drunk driving case. You want to know what you know the 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 blood alcohol content was. And we used to call it the the uh, breathalyzer. I think they call it the intoxic intoxicator, intoxicator now. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any event, everyone it makes it easy. You're not exactly putting it on an automatic pilot, but you can put a lot of trust in it. And about two years ago, the Metropolitan Police Department found out that their uh, their their breath their alcohol testing. Um, machinery or the, 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 that they used was off. It had been calculated incorrectly at every police station in Washington, D.C. They had hired, as I recollect from the newspaper, a retired U.S. Park policeman to take over the alcohol testing program for drunk drivers. And he found they all read 20% higher than was than what it should have been. Oh, my. And I know. I mean, I mean, I'm sure they put people in jail as a result of it. Sure. Uh, and they went back and had to undo, you know, a lot of that. Um, and, and the same holds true. Uh, there, there are parallel principles involved with the fire service that you want it, you want it accurate, you want it right, you want to be able to put your trust in it because not everybody understands the technology, uh, and, and that's important uh, as to how this works. And when you go to court, you got to have somebody who can really explain how it works. Uh, I can remember I did a murder trial, um, and the... the um, FBI agent had been relocated somewhere in the Midwest. His name was, I still remember his name, Robert Murphy. If he'd have told me he was a Texas Ranger, I'd have believed it by the time it was all over with. He was that good, that compelling, was, and he was a firearms, uh, question firearms ex- uh, examiner. And he could tell you which bullet match would, where it came from and how. And I, you need somebody like that occasionally uh, to really, you know, do what you need done so everybody on a jury can understand in the most simple terms what all this really means in the end. And that's just one example of it. Um, well, you know, um, Your Honor, as a matter of fact, I know that you've worked a um, arson uh, murder. Uh, what I think I will do is we're going to go to break here in a minute because we have uh, we have to pause for a break. But Sure. Um, when we come back, uh, Tom, I want you to just, if you would, um, the, the judge rightly talked about 1033, and you did. Let's talk about 921 for a minute, okay, and, uh, and talk about how uh, us fire investigators are, are utilizing that to overcome these uh, challenges uh, to, um, to our opinions uh, when we're doing it properly. Okay, Tom? Absolutely. All right, so let's go to, we're going to have to go to break um, here uh, right now. And, and so uh, when you come back, uh, come back to Speaking of Fire. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. 
We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. Fireanalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show... Please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for joining us. I've been kind of hogging the microphone. Mike, I wanted to go ahead and let you speak a little bit today. Me? Yeah, he's down in Louisiana somewhere (laughs) eating crawfish, so go ahead. (laughs) Okay, so I'm 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 speaking to uh, Tom now because Tom, we want to talk a little bit about 921 um, NFPA 921 that fire investigators use as a guide, and also I want you to. You're in California. I know you don't have any drug use out there at all, so you might want to address (laughs) that too. Yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, 921 obviously is the uh, big kahuna in the uh, field of fire investigations, although it's uh, entitled a guide. Most courts consider it a standard, and uh, really it's being used more and more uh, as uh, challenges mount to fire investigators. Uh, What I find really interesting is that uh, I believe it's Chapter 2, of NFPA 921 references uh, various other treatises, and as a result, it can be argued legally that uh, everything is fair game uh, that's uh, cited to in NFPA 921. Uh, My suggestion to uh, neophytes in the field of fire investigation, as well as uh, uh, those who have been doing this for a while, is to adhere strictly to 921, and if you do deviate, you have to have a pretty good explanation. Um, Attorneys are becoming more astute, familiar with the document itself, and uh, the challenges are uh, uh, almost inevitable in both the civil and the criminal context. Um, We're seeing 921 used more now to cabin in the testimony of public fire investigator. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking you, um, you even do, uh, there'll be challenges. 1033 is being used in depositions now because of the 16 things that we have to stay current in. But, um, I'm thinking that you even do Dalbert challenges where someone, um, is is challenged uh, under the Dalbert uh, ruling, and you defend them uh, because uh, to show that they really are competent uh, to to testify. And then after your, will you address that? And we'll ask the we'll ask the judge uh, what if whether or not he's ever uh, had to preside over a, a Dalbert hearing. But let's hear from you, Tom, first, please. Sure. Uh, well. Um most judges, in my uh, observations, uh, are loathe to exclude evidence or expert witness testimony. Uh, the trend has been to defer 
to the jury and let them decide what weight to afford any given testimony and or evidence. Uh, but uh, now that's changing. Um, as far as uh, 1033 goes, um, although it is a standard, the uh, rule 702 rule of evidence gives the judge wide latitude to admit or exclude that evidence. Judges usually, again, let it in. So, but uh, as a uh, buffer or uh, insurance, uh, any fire investigator should compare their resume to the specifics contained in 1033 to make sure that they have the uh, uh, appropriate training and expertise in uh, thermodynamics and uh, thermometry. Um, as a sidebar, there are a lot of uh, courses out here that uh, some are free of charge. Uh, for example, um, in one of my degree programs, I studied uh, fire dynamics, but I fulfilled the uh, requirements of 1033 by taking a course through the University of Michigan that was totally free, uh, thermodynamics. So, um, but, but these challenges are inevitable, and those who... Uh, uh, don't fulfill those requirements, uh, 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 proceed at risk. Right, Thank Honor, you for you saying... Oh, had... sorry. No, Go ahead. Sorry. I'm, my apologies. Um, Your Honor, have you ever had to preside over a, a Dalbert hearing, or has they ever I been have. brought before you? Actually, yeah. and it's rare, and I have. And um, it involved an explosion in a mm. rental Maybe these rental facilities, I guess every community has rental facilities. Um, people don't have big houses anymore, so they rent storage bins mm -hmm. and garages. And uh, in any event, then before it's all over with, in, in this instance, somebody didn't pay the rent. So they auction off the contents of it. They just abandoned it and they auctioned off. So I'm trying, it was someplace in my county. I forgot exactly what part of the county, but uh, it's been a while. So they um, decided. Uh, to auction off, they auction off. The man who buys it finds a pipe bomb in it, or what looks like a pipe mm -hmm. bomb. So he brings the pipe bomb to the office. And he's smoking a cigarette, as I recollect the evidence, and puts it on the table and goes, I think I bought a pipe bomb in his deal. So he then, I know, this is just any event, so he goes, it looks like a pipe bomb to me. So, of course, they call 911. The world shows up. The... Um, all the local news channels show up, TV stations show up as well. So at some point in time, they have the robot render safe the pipe bomb. Well, what happens is it blows the whole end of the building off. The Venetian blinds go, and this is all 6 o'clock news material. You can see the Venetian blinds and the furniture going out the windows. So, of course, it destroyed the robot and shocked everybody at that point. So the owner of the rental facility sues the county under the theory that they should have picked the, what they perceived to be the bomb up, taken it someplace and exploded it instead of just leaving it in place. And the, and the issue then was to leave it in place. It was at a time when we had bomb blankets to put over things. And I remember there was an Army colonel. He was a member of the Engineer Corps, the Army Engineer Corps, uh, who testified they should have done it that way. And the, mm -hmm. the state of the, the the state of the science at that time was you know, leave it where you find it and deal with it. And uh, mm -hmm. that that was the issue then over what what the correct procedure was and the science involved on how you render safe something that explosive. Uh, but it was an interesting trial. Wow. Sounds like and it. We took the position it was it was the, we took the position it was the rental company's bomb, not the bomb squads and. <laughs> You called us and we fixed it for you. Sadly, it blew the end of the building off, but you know somebody could have got hurt too. Wow! <laughs> but there was a Dalbert hearing that came out of that. that right? You know which was correct. Um, oh, I whether we should, you know, render it safe in place or take it someplace else. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. And um, and and Tom, are you are you now? I know David Bridges from. Uh, Mir and Gear in, in Minneapolis, and you, I know you do that. Um, other attorneys uh, defend um, uh, fire investigators in Dalbert uh, cases. Have you gotten any recently? Uh, nothing recently, um, but um, I do, uh, as a non-testifying expert witness, I've done quite a bit of work uh, for 
other attorneys in preparing them to attack the qualifications of fire experts as well as any proposed substantive uh, testimony. And um, here, uh, a CV is representative of, uh, for the most part, of compliance with NFPA 1033. It's very low-hanging fruit. So as a result, that will be the first line of attack in almost any instance. Now, uh, substantive challenges become more difficult if uh, the attorney is not familiar with fire science. There are a few that are, though, and the ones that aren't, they have a very short learning curve. So, but those who are, uh, and I've worked on some high-profile cases where uh, experts were uh, challenged. Um, uh, it, uh, it, it's very uh, prudent for, uh, in report writing to uh, explain your hypotheses uh, with specificity in order to uh, fend off those types of challenges. Right. That's right. And, Your I Honor, think, you, I, think, um, I think before I think he's absolutely right on that count. Um, the, there was a time in my life when I first went into practice, there was an unofficial rule that said you never challenge anybody's CV or his bio just because the person, the person can't defend that, he can't defend anything. And everyone thought that was the, the, the rule. You never question anybody about their, their biography or their CV. And then we find later on that people take liberties with it, and sometimes it's just flat out not true. So that, that mm-hmm. rule has totally turned around since, since I got admitted to practice. Now you look, that's the first place you go to see if you can find something that's not true on there. Um, and I think that's important. Right. And, well, Your Honor, you were in a, a, a fire. Um Homicide case, weren't you a murder? I, there were, we rarely, we don't even have the death penalty in Maryland anymore. But during that period of time mm. when we did, I did two death penalties. And one was an arson murder case. And it involved a graduate student at the University of Maryland who had just gotten his Ph.D. in, in um, I'm trying to remember exactly, water purification issues. He, was, he had just gotten a job with the World Bank to do third world water purification work. Uh, he was uh, initially from Mexico, as I recollect. And I, I remember his dad came up for the trial and was suffering from cancer, which is very sad. Uh, and the facts were that the, one of his neighbors um, was a drug addict, and he um, robbed him uh, for the money and tied him to his bed and then stuffed a rag in his, in his mouth and then set the bed on fire. And the mm. medical examiner, I mean, this is just a horrible case, terrible death. The medical examiner couldn't say, couldn't say for sure whether he died from the fire injuries or he suffocated from the sock that was stuffed in his mouth. And mm. um, in, in Maryland at the time, you had what we called death qualified jury so that everybody on the jury was able to vote for the death penalty if necessary. And um, it's a very involved and complicated process. And we send a questionnaire out. And I can remember we sent the questionnaire with the Christmas cards that year about whether you could impose the death penalty or not. And the trial oh was just, I know, it was just awful, right? And um, the trial was supposed to start right after the first of the year. And um, he, he, we have, our, our county correctional center is built on the California model where it's in pods and there's about 40 people, I think, in a pod, maybe 50. Um, makes it easily manageable. Uh, good place to be. One event, everybody in this young man's pod was getting off. So he decided he was going to get off. And his mother was um, in a wheelchair. And, mm-hmm. and at the time, our public defender had a, they called it the handholder, who would come down from Baltimore and talk to you once you got mad at your lawyers. And his lawyers <laughs> said, we've worked the deal. You know, your mother's not going to be visiting you in the graveyard if you plead guilty. And he didn't want to hear it. And they wanted to have it. Remember, people called it an intervention where somebody in your family has a problem. Well, they right. decided this, in my case, was the public defender case of the year, and I didn't know it at the time. They had an intervention, and they were trying to figure out a way to do this. I've done this once since then. With the, uh, We had a serial rapist here who was a mailman. Um, in any event, they wanted his mom, the handholder, and his lawyer to all talk to each other. And, I mean, he was looking at death row here fairly, fairly quickly. And they were trying to figure out a way that they could do this 
without him taking somebody hostage or creating a worse situation and not having the sheriff hear what they were saying to each other. Uh, I remember the Secret Service were trying to get a protective exception to standing next to the president when they heard things that they probably shouldn't hear and could be used in court. So somehow I found a, a large conference room here at the courthouse so he could meet with his mom, his lawyers, and the handholder. And they pretty much tied him to a chair, and the de- sheriff's deputies went to the far end of the room where they legitimately couldn't hear anything so they could have that conversation. It all worked itself out with a plea for life without parole, and that's where he is now. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Well, um, at least and then, um, I mean, yeah, the, public alive. De- the public defender thought this intervention was a really great idea. And the East Coast serial rapists had the same thing happen. And I, I didn't, we had, we would, some of it happened in Maryland, and pretty much the same thing followed from it. How about you, Tom? Did Tom, have you uh, worked any um, arson um, murders? I know I, I have, but they're they're not the most wonderful cases to work. But go ahead. Yeah, I've weighed in on quite a few, um, both as an expert and advising attorneys concerning the same. I have a fairly long track record uh, with uh, Innocence Projects internationally, and uh, I'm not at liberty to discuss the specifics of uh, some of the cases because post-conviction relief is still ongoing, but I've found in uh, not saying that something sinister is afoot, but uh, in, on the criminal side of things, uh, just uh, flawed uh, interpretations and testimony has uh, led to quite a, a slew of cases where of wrongful convictions based on faulty scientific evidence. Um, I think that uh, Texas is on a good path. Uh, they have a forensic science commission. A friend of mine, uh, Dr. David Iko, is on that particular a commission in they're reviewing these cases now for the uh, fire science and the dynamics and how uh, uh, expertise was applied to the various facts at hand. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel as though uh, uh, it's egregious when someone uh, loses time or possibly their life based on faulty uh, uh, testimony and there needs to be more safeguards uh, in place to prevent this from happening. Uh, he's right. right. He's right. I think the New Jersey Supreme Court has put down some rules on uh, on evidence. I know with eyewitnesses in, in particular, they have one of the best eyewitness rules in the country, uh, as I understand it. Um, but uh, here, uh, what the... Uh, Literature is still pointing out, and studies are showing that uh, uh, judges uh, as gatekeepers are still uh, falling. Uh, I I believe that uh, uh, education is the key, uh, continuing legal education as far as uh, not only fire investigation, but all forensic sciences that are soft, uh, quote-unquote, would be the key. And also, judges have at their disposal, I believe it's Rule 705, where they can appoint their own expert. I know that uh, that is sometimes cost prohibitive, but uh, when it comes to fire, and when we're looking at a burden uh, of beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, I would prefer that the uh, we see more less of a popularity contest and more of a scientific based. Uh, prosecution and or defense. That's something I wanted to say to the fire investigators out there that are seasoned and new to the business. Uh, We were talking earlier about 1033 and the 16 points and qualifying and Daubert all tied in together. The International Association of Arson Investigators, most of the chapters are now listing the hours of training and listing which of those 16 points uh, the training relates to so that you can put that on your curriculum vitae and you are not going to be challenged as much. And and while we're on training, Your Honor, I, I earlier when I, and I only read a portion of your qualifications, which are amazing, I wanted to ask you uh, about your, your teaching at the Naval Academy. 
In fact, tonight's my class night. I teach a class for the Naval War College at the U.S. Naval Academy. The class I teach is theater security decision-making, and it's a master's-level program for faculty and staff at the Naval Academy for the most part. Um, It's 18 mid-career professionals uh, doing really well who get their master's degree in national security strategy. Um, Look, I've been doing it for 10 years. It's... um, for me, very, very rewarding. Um, last week, we tried to, to war game the Pacific, and tonight we're going to talk about uh, nuclear deterrence and how effective it is and whether we keep the triad of submarines, bombers, and missiles or not, and whether we can afford to. Um, so that's, for, me, that's, for me, that's really good, and you're kind, kind to say it. Well, and, and thank you so much for your service, both of you, so much for your service. I meant to say that up front, that uh, my son is a veteran, uh, my father is a veteran, my whole family is military, and so I understand, and my son served in Iraq also. Never and, more proud than wearing that uniform, I bet. I know it yeah. was for me. Yeah, and thank you so much. And and the key is, and, and the military knows this, it's all about training, isn't it? In the end, you know. Yeah. And do well. Okay. I'm going to say I want to say uh, thank you too. And I'm a yeah, I'm a vet, and and uh, I was there uh, the the Vietnam era uh, thing. But uh, naturally, I I was a kid wrapped in a flag and wanted to go to Vietnam. So naturally, they sent me to Berlin. So I stayed there for a couple of years. That's where Donna was born. <laughs> I <actually>. a Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now, one of my so, best yeah. friends in life, one of my best friends in life, went to Washington and Lee, and he's like you, except he went to Paris. He was the provost. He was, as a first lieutenant, he was the first. He was the provost marshal general of France and locked all the doors when uh, France left the military part of NATO. But it, it was oh. a good deal while it lasted. <laughs> Everybody else in his class went to Vietnam. <laughs> I know. So he went to France. That was tough. Yeah, I know it's a tough duty. Uh, but anyway, but uh, I'll tell you. Well, we're going to continue to de- we're going to continue to um, uh, not only support our military and uh, and our fire service and uh, and police. Um, a lot of us, Your Honor, have uh, backgrounds. Mine is police work. Uh, a lot of us have uh, fire service background to, to do this uh, fire investigation, um, and and we. Um, we appreciate the the law, and as you know, and I and we talked about it when when we were in uh, in in your in, in Maryland there with you. Um, these the, a lot of the fire investigators are scared of you. They're scared of Tom, who's an attorney that's going to ask them questions, and they're scared of the judge. They're afraid that he's going to either ask them a question or sanction them somehow. Um, what's your advice? I'm going to ask both of you. What's your best advice to? these fire investigators when they're going to have to testify. Let's do Tom first because you you actually have done it. You've done them both sides of it. (laughs) And then, Your Honor, if you'll have the last word on that, okay? Go ahead. Uh, Rehearsal would be the key, in my humble opinion, uh, because uh, normally uh, a a testifying witness, if he's... uh, cabined in as he should be is not going to be able to testify to anything that's outside of that expert witness report. So uh, it also uh, any skeletons in the closet, any uh, missteps uh, should be uh, revealed on direct examination. In other words, to steal opposing counsel's thunder during a cross-examination. If, if there was a misstep or a second interpretation that could be plausible, all of this should be brought out. So the best defense against a blistering cross-examination is going to be a very thorough and uh, well-thought-out uh, um, uh, direct examination. Uh, uh, having others critique uh, your uh, delivery, uh, your report itself, goes a long way into uh, testifying successfully in these types of situations. Thank you, Tom. And how about you, Your Honor? What, what oh, I, I think it's fear of the unknown. I don't think there's any magic here. I think it's human nature. Um, it, it's 98% of all the cases in court settle. They all settle. The system's only, system only works for about 2% that actually go to trial, 
and you couldn't do the rest. And that's why people are critical of plea bargaining, uh, critical of it takes too long, it's too complicated, it's too expensive. It's a fear of the unknown. It just, it's, it's not a comfortable place to be, and you're really on the spot. I've been called as a witness two, three times. It is not comfortable at all. I know that from my own personal experience. Because uh, you want to remember it correctly, you want to say the right things, and you don't want to get it wrong. And I think all that factors into that fear factor, um, and and that's that's unfortunate. We we search warrants are huge here, uh, and we we go out of our way to make sure everybody gets a search warrant before they do anything. And we found that we had search warrant issues. And of course, the one we lost would be the one in the murder case, and the search warrant was the linchpin to the whole prosecution. And for some reason, we couldn't find it. So in any event, we, we, we started search warrant mini camp and took a day off and we put 200 detectives and fire investigators in a room that held them and spent the whole day going soup to nuts. And we do it every couple of years to bring everybody current. Generally in every organization, every law enforcement organization or fire investigators organization, there's somebody who's the search warrant go-to person. That person changes. So if you can get that person educated in the, in the court part of it and the search warrant part of it, that's all helpful. The the other testimony is pretty much factual for the most part, and then eventually it'll lead into an an expert opinion as to what happened. Um, that's why I recommend this course at Emmitsburg. It's really good. Um, there's one at the University of Maryland. In fact, I'm going to speak in or speak at uh, in November. But I think those are all really good things to do, and it's just mastering the knowledge of what's going on. There's a lot of practical experience that goes into it. Um, you know, it's like being a doctor. you got to operate for the first time. There's a lot of fear of that, I've found. But once you do it, and you get, I mean, it's never going to, courthouse is never going to be your home away from home, but at least you'll feel comfortable there once you've done it a few times. And I think that's helpful. Um, Thank you. Thank thank you you. so much for saying that. We're we're down to the closing of the show, believe it or not. It goes so quickly. And I want to thank you both so very much for being guests on the show. We'd like to invite you back. Um, One of the things I I want to tell everyone out there is we have 22,000 listeners. And I invite you to send an email to me at connect at speakingoffire.com. That's C-O-N-N-E-C-T at speakingoffire.com. And give us your your points of view. Uh, if you have questions on any of the shows, send me your questions, and we can reach out to the, the, the gracious guests that we have that take their time. And, and they're doing this because they want you out there to know what's going on and really appreciate... Uh, the fact that you're listening. So if you would, connect at speakingoffire.com. And also if you have some topics that you'd like us to discuss or feel like we didn't cover something or like to hear a little bit more. And so I invite you to come back to Speaking of Fire. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.